You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you all here. I know there's a lot of people that are on holidays as well taking advantage of the long weekend, and I know that they've uh, also, uh, you know, stopped whatever they were doing to watch our service online. So um, welcome to you that are watching online as well. Um, and thank you, worship team, for leading us in worship this morning. It was awesome, right? Yeah? Um, yeah, sure. They deserve that. Uh, <laughs> I've, I've actually asked them, that the reason they haven't left is I've actually asked the worship band to stay on stage for a couple of minutes in order to help me with uh, a demonstration or an illustration of sorts, which pertains to our passage, which we're going to be reading from, from 1 Corinthians 14 today, as we continue our series through 1 Corinthians. So what I've asked them to do is for each person on the team to play or sing uh, a chorus from one of the songs from their set list this morning. Um, now, before they do this, let's remember uh, that we've just heard four of these songs already, and I think we can all agree that these songs were musically cohesive. The lyrics clearly glorified God, right? They were useful for leading us into worshiping the Lord together, and, and the band played well as a unified team, right? Yeah? Okay, we're all agreed. But what I've been wondering is, you know, is since each song was so good on its own, what would, what would happen if we played them all at the same time? Like, since each song glorified Jesus, shouldn't adding all of them together at once make it, make it even much, a much more powerful experience? Yeah? Well, let's, let's see. Let's find out. All right? All right, band, take it away. Okay, that's good. That's great. That's good. I, 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 yeah, well done. Uh, <laughs> thank you, worship team. I, uh, as a musician myself, I know that was probably hard to do. <laughs> hard to bring yourself to do that, but I really appreciate it, so thank you so much. Let's give them a, let's give them a hand for um, playing uh, so terribly there. Uh, anyways, what, what's, what's the lesson here? <laughs> what can we learn from this? The, the, it's simple. The lesson is that without uniformity... Or, or that is, without order, we have chaos, right? Just random noise, which, which doesn't do anybody any good. It, in, in fact, it has the opposite effect, right? It's anarchy. Who wanted to leave and walk out while that was happening? Uh, I certainly did. I was going to let it go on longer, actually, but I was like, no, I couldn't. Uh, <laughs> and, and anyway, so this, this problem of, of anarchy... Chaos, it seems, was one of the many divisive issues which was facing the church in Corinth. And, and it's what the Apostle Paul will be addressing in, in the second half of chapter 14. And, and, and what we'll be able to infer from Paul's words in his letter to them is that when, when they came together uh, as the church, it seems like they've been creating an atmosphere not, not of love and, and patience and respect and putting others before themselves, 
which Paul's had to teach them about already earlier in the letter, right? But rather, they've been creating one of disorder and chaos where, where many of them were, were, were seemingly putting themselves first or by doing their own thing and even interrupting each other with their spiritual gifts, like specifically prophecy and tongues. So on, on that end, over the last month, we've been learning um, that we have been given gifts of the Spirit to build up the church, and that's important. But what they were doing with them was actually bringing the church down. And so, so Paul, as, as almost if um, he was speaking to little children who haven't learned basic social skills yet, I mean, he does tell them to stop being childish in their thinking right before this, so there's that to keep in mind. But he basically has to write to them and say, hey, one at a time, take turns, and stop interrupting when it's not your turn. So that's what's happening. So, let's, so turn with me to 1 Corinthians 14, 26 to 40. 1 Corinthians 14, 26 to 40. This is the Apostle Paul speaking to the church in Corinth. And he says, What then, brothers and sisters? Whenever you come together, each one has a hymn, a teaching, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything is to be done for building up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, there are to be only two, or at the most three, each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no interpreter, that person is to keep silent in the church and speak to himself and God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should evaluate. But if something has been revealed to another person sitting there, the first prophet should be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that everyone may learn and everyone may be encouraged. And the prophet's spirits are subject to the prophets, since God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should be silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to submit themselves as the law also says. If they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, since it is disgraceful for a woman, woman to speak in the church. Or did the word of God originate from you, or did it come to you only? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should recognize that what I write to you is the Lord's command. If anyone ignores this, he will be ignored. So then, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything is to be done decently and in order. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so... I find it slightly ironic that in, in calling the church to be unified in Christ, the Apostle Paul also manages to bring up three of some of the most divisive subjects in the history of Christianity. So, <laughs> prophecy, tongues, the role of women in the church. Thanks, Paul. Group, group all of those together. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is have grace for me this morning, okay? Thank you. Um, but, you know, we, we preach through the Scripture. We don't skip anything, right? Because God speaks through it all. Um, at the same time, you know, I, I don't want to overcomplicate this passage like I think so many seem to do. Ultimately, Paul's underlying concern here in this passage is to bring order where there's been disorder. To bring order where there's been disorder. And he wants to do this for two reasons specifically. One, for the edification of the church. The edification means building up of the church, right? That, that is so that everyone can benefit and grow in Christ together. That, that's his concern. He wants everyone to benefit and grow in Christ together. 
And number two, and most importantly, he wants to bring order because God is a God of order and his people should reflect that. It's really that simple. Um, well, I'll explain it a little further. So he writes that when Christians gather together as the, the ecclesia, which, which is a Greek word that means church or congregation or gathering of people, ecclesia, he writes that, that each person has a gift to contribute. Each person has something to bring, right? Some, someone might come with a, a worship song to sing, right, a hymn, or, or someone else with a word to teach or, or with a prophecy or with a tongue or an interpretation of a tongue. That, that's great. That's awesome. And, and as we learned last week, we should be eager to use the gifts of, of the Spirit that, that, that God has given us, right? But, but some, which is something that we are still growing in at the gate, to be sure. But what simply wouldn't work out very well is if, you know, we all came in on a, on a Sunday morning or during a small group Bible study or a worship night or whatever, and then everyone just started doing their own thing at the same time, right? It'd be like, we create an atmosphere of chaos and confusion, like, like the band did earlier. Um, or, or it's like, you know, I, th- I think of it like a, when a group of kids uh, comes running up to their, to their mom, excited to tell her something that they'd all just seen, and, and they're all talking at the same time because they're all so excited. But then the mom has to say, slow down, you know, I can't, I can't understand what you're saying. Please speak to me one at a time. One at a time, please. Right, parents? You know what I'm talking about, Right. Teachers probably know too, you know. Um, in the same way that the Corinthians were excited to, to worship God and use these new gifts that they've been given to do it, but yet running in and using them all at the same time would ensure that no one benefited. And so Paul's telling them, hey, let, let's just make sure we use them appropriately, respectively, and for the purpose that they were given. So once again, he writes that everything is to be done for building one another up and in order to create that kind of atmosphere or space which is conducive to accomplishing this, he instructs them from verse 40 saying everything is to be done decently and in order. Everything. Everything. That is, he's saying decently, you know, with patience and humility and respect for one another and, 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 and in order in a way that gives opportunity for all to listen and for all to be heard. Without order, that can't happen. So, and just to be clear, though, he's, he's, Paul's definitely not trying to snuff out or, or quench the work of the Holy Spirit moving in the church by calling for order here. He's, he's actually doing the opposite. He's trying to make sure that the Spirit actually has room to move and that the people of God have an opportunity to learn and grow as he does. Now, it's possible that, that since many or, or most of these Christians in Corinth at that time, they, they would have just recently been saved out of pagan religions, right? So, so th- this might be the only way that they knew how to worship, right? Maybe they were used to worshiping in that more chaotic setting, like, like with everyone shouting and, 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 and mumbling and, and doing their own thing to stir up the favor of the gods or whatever else, right? Or, or maybe some of them were trying to just hog all the attention, there's, maybe there's an ego issue. Actually, we knew there was. There is from the other passages in, in uh, 1 Corinthians. So that could be happening as well. Who knows? But, but either way, uh, according to Paul, that wasn't the kind of atmosphere that, that God wants the gatherings of his people to look like. Not only because disorder ensures that no one benefits, but also, and especially because this isn't who God is. This isn't who God is. Our God is not a God of chaos and disorder. 
In fact, throughout Scripture, we see over and over again that he's the God who calms and stills the waters of chaos. He's the God who brings peace in the midst of trouble. He's the God who gives understanding in times of confusion. He's the God who restores what's been broken. He's the God who reconciles and unifies what's been separated. And of course, when we look to Genesis, we see that God had created the heavens and the earth and and, and all that's in it to be this place of order and harmony and peace. And that he created men and women to be his image bearers and caretakers of that order and that peace on the earth. And furthermore, if we continue to read in Genesis, we know that it was the sin and disobedience of mankind which brought chaos and disorder and confusion into the world. But that because of God's love for us and his faithfulness to us, he sent his son Jesus who has now defeated the power of that sin on the cross by dying in our place. And he did that so that we could be reconciled and restored back into his perfect peace and understanding. Which means that if if we are truly disciples of Jesus, walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, living as image bearers of God the Father, then we should reflect that. We we should be conduits of his peace and his love and his self-control and his understanding wherever we go, but especially when we're gathered together in his name. You can say that the gifts of the Spirit will always produce or coincide with the fruit of the Spirit, for God cannot deny himself. And so, so again, Paul's, gathering the believe, the, Paul's calling the gatherings of believers to have order for both practical and theological reasons. And on that end, he refers to three, three specific things which seem to be the primary culprits of disorder and interruption among their gatherings, besides all the other stuff which he's already addressed in his letter, of course. Anyway, the first issue that he mentions in this passage is concerning speaking in tongues. And we already learned about that last week. We learned that speaking in tongues is a gift given by the Spirit, which gives a person utterance of speech in a different language that's glorifying to God. And so regarding this gift, he says that in a group setting, for the sake of clarity and for the sake of understanding, speaking in tongues is appropriate just as long as there's an interpretation given for what's being said, and as long as there's only two or at the most three people who are doing this, who are expressing this gift, and they should do it one at a time. So he's given just instructions about how to do that in a public setting. He says, however, though, if there isn't an interpreter, then those with the gift of tongues are encouraged to practice it between themselves and God, like maybe in their personal daily prayer time or something like that. Because as we learned last week, without clarity, it it just isn't beneficial to anyone else in a group setting and and could turn people, new believers or, or unbelievers, away if they see it. So we don't want that to happen. And then he says, same, same with prophecies. He says, there, there should only be two or three, and each person who is selected to share what the Holy Spirit's placed on their heart should be given a turn to speak so that everyone can clearly hear them and, and learn from them without, without interruption. So he's basically just telling them, again, he's basically just telling them to respect each other and take turns 
give room for one another and instead of speaking over one another and interrupting one another. It's basic. Uh, but, but even then, like, like all prophecies, he says, Paul writes that the prophecy which they share should also then be tested and, and evaluated by those listening. <clears throat> and this is significant. This is for two reasons. First, so that they can confirm the validity of the prophecies through Scripture and prayer and discernment, which, which is incredibly important to do, lest we be duped or misinformed. Um, but secondly... The evaluation is, is also so that they can take time to understand the meaning of the prophecy, which is also important. Uh, this is, again, Paul's priority, that everyone can have a chance to learn and to be built up in their faith and understanding through the prophecies that are given. So he's just encouraging an atmosphere that is conducive to accomplishing that purpose. Is everyone following so far? Hopefully. Though it's at this point in the passage where things get uncomfortable, right? Paul seems to drastically, uncomfortable for us, Paul seems to drastically and surprisingly change course in his letter. It just seems to come out of nowhere. He, he writes to them saying that women shouldn't speak in the church and instead should wait to ask their husbands at home if they seek understanding. So it'll come as no surprise that these two verses have been widely interpreted and I would argue misappropriated in many ways over the last 2,000 years, often as a way to subjugate women in the church. Which, goes without saying, is very unfortunate. But, um, so yeah, of course these verses can seem very controversial today as well. Uh, more than ever, probably today, than, than ever before. So, so much so, in fact, that some liberal theologians have tried to argue that the Apostle Paul didn't even write these, these two verses and that they were just added later, that they were, like, put in by some scribe who didn't like women or something. Um, but yet, the evidence of the early manuscripts do point to the fact that Paul probably did write these verses. And so we can't write them off, but we do have to ask, you know, what's he really saying here then? What's, he, what's really going on here? Well, First of all, again, if we do take these verses out of context, it certainly does seem like he's forbidding all women from speaking any word at all aloud at any time in any type of church gathering, which just seems kind of silly. Uh, and, it, it, and it can't really mean that because then it would actually contradict with much of the New Testament um, and especially with what he'd already just written previously in the exact same letter when he talked about women prophesying in, the, in gatherings from chapter 11. So he says in chapter 11 that women are prophesying in gatherings, and then now he's saying that they can't speak at all? That doesn't make any sense. So he must mean something else. And, and to be honest, we could go on and on here about what Paul's saying and what others have interpreted because there's so many different possibilities that people have suggested or, or come up with. But, but here's what I, I'm just going to say what I and some other trusted theologians think he's saying here. And uh, I could definitely be wrong, but as I read it and prayed through it and, and studied it within the context of the letter and within the Bible and within this passage itself, I think it's important to recognize two specific things. First of all, that he's assuming that the women he's talking, to, talking about are married. He's assuming that the women he's talking about are married because he says they can go home and ask their husbands, so they must be married. And secondly, he brings this up within the context of evaluating prophecies and 
ultimately a concern for order in the church. So we have to keep those two things in mind. And so when we do, the conclusion that we can come to or that I've come to and like others have as well is that I don't think Paul's trying to snuff out women from having or using their spiritual gifts within the church, especially because we've already learned as well that over the last month that the Spirit gives to whom he wills and that each member of the body is significant. Instead, though, what I think he's actually saying is simply this, is that if a woman... Or, or, sorry, if a woman's husband shares a prophecy, then the church gathering is simply not the appropriate place for her to question him or have a debate with him about it. Instead, they can talk about it at home. Simply speaking, the concern here seems to be not only the fact that a, a, that a spousal debate would become another interruption to the order of church gathering, and a very awkward one at that, right? but that it would also become problematic and unbiblical if a woman misused that opportunity to criticize or, or even seemingly exercise spiritual authority over her husband in that manner, since the husband is supposed to be the spiritual head of the home. Um, as uh, theologian Anthony Thistleton writes, Paul shows concern not only for respect between husband and wife in public and at home, as we can read from chapter 11, but also for the effect of ordered or disordered worship upon outsiders or unbelievers. Using public worship as an extension of tensions in the home would have disastrous effects. Anyways, I could be wrong, but that's what makes sense to me within the context of the passage and um, the letter itself and through, through the New Testament. So, ultimately though, The primary directive, which Paul, again, is bringing to the church here, is that when the church gathers together for worship, everyone, men and women, need to respect that. They need to do so in a way that respects one another and also gives space for the gifts that they bring. He ends up 1 Corinthians 14, 39 to 40. He says, So then, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything is to be done decently and in order. All right, on that end, though, I'd say that, with, you know, with the exception of a few m- movements out there um, and uh, denominations out there, I- I'd say that, that the modern or, or Western church doesn't really have a problem with disorder in their assemblies, right? Um, in fact, if we're truly honest, I think that in many cases, we've actually swung the pendulum a little too far the other way, right? The cr- Corinthians are over here, and, and the Western church is kind of over here, uh, to the point where order has become so paramount that we leave little room for people to use their gifts. And what many have forgotten here, again, and, and as I said earlier, is that Paul's not calling for order at the expense of the gifts of the Spirit. Rather, his call for order was to give room for those gifts to be expressed in a way where everyone could benefit. And so, in some cases, I'd say the modern church has often replaced or confused order with control. And rather than create space for the Spirit to move or for people to use their gifts, the primary concern is to make sure the service order goes just as it was planned. As uh, Anglican pastor and theologian N.T. Wright notes, I think it's interesting that he's an Anglican and he's writing this, he says, of course, there are many churches today where there is so much order and peace that Paul might have wondered if everyone had gone to sleep. That poses different problems. 
which a fresh and lively engagement with the gospel itself and the personal challenges it poses should begin to address. So we also need to understand, though, to be fair, that the gatherings in, in Corinth, which Paul's addressing, were most likely different and, and much more informal than our more formal Sunday gatherings today. Because, you know, they probably met at somebody's house and, 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 and sat in groups and so the challenge for us, I think, is how can we apply this, this these lessons in, in our modern setting? Um, so the question for us isn't really, you know, how can we maintain order in the church since we basically have it already, but rather how can we give more space within that order for people to express their spiritual gifts, whether that is on a Sunday morning service like this, or maybe it might work better in spaces like community groups or Bible studies or worship or prayer nights or whatever. And so this is certainly something that I think we as a church should be praying about as we move forward together as the body of Christ and, and keep growing in that end and challenging ourselves on that end as well. On that note, a really intriguing and, and I think, and I would argue, exciting example of, of the Spirit of God moving powerfully through believers, but in an orderly and, and respectful way right now is, is this revival, if you want to call it that, I would call it that, this revival that's going on at Asbury University right now, which has lasted for almost two weeks so far. Um, some of you have probably seen footage of it online. It's just these students were having chapel one day, and they started worshiping, and, and it ended, but people didn't want to leave, and they started repenting and worshiping together. And uh, it's been going on continuously for almost two weeks now. Um, and so it's amazing to see such a, a, a powerful and unified expression of authentic repentance and worship to the Lord, where, where individuals of are also given room to share a word or to lead a song as they feel led in the spirit to do so. And, you know, nothing's happening at the same time. It's like, it's like one at a time. They're taking turns and as, as, as the spirit leads them. It's really awesome to see. Ultimately, no one is vying for attention because it's all being given to Jesus. So, and, and that's the point. It's so awesome. It's, it's a great illustration of what Paul's talking about here. Um, but coming back to what I was saying before, is that I, I think Paul's call for believers in this letter to be eager for the spiritual gifts is, is something that we should firstly be praying and taking to heart. Because we could, we could give room for spiritual gifts, but if we're not exercising them, then what would be the point, right? And so that, that, has, that has, to, has to start with us discovering our gifts. And, and um, while... And so as we come to the end of Paul's conversation and instruction on spiritual gifts and how to use them within the context of the body of Christ in public settings, I, I want to encourage each of you to discover your gifts, to discover your gift. Because whatever gift you have, we need it. Whatever gift you've been given, the church needs it. So you need to discover your gift. And while the Bible isn't very specific on how to do this, uh, and there's certainly no set formula here, uh, if, you know, if you see a book online and it's like, how to discover your gift, the perfect formula, um, don't buy that book. That's, there's no formula, right? But even still, I, I do want to offer you some action steps or suggestions on ways that you can find and develop your gift, and so if you, if you have, you know, a pen or pencil or you, if you have your phone, your notes on your phone, you might want to write these down. Um, 
they're not that complicated. Um, but it does take dedication and commitment. So some suggestions on ways that you can develop your gift. Number one, so obvious, but spend time with the Lord. Spend time with the Lord. God is the giver of gifts. Every good and perfect gift comes from him, as it says in James 1. And so spending time with him through reading the Bible, his word, praying, and listening to him, worshiping, repenting before him, obeying his commandments, all these things, right? We need to be spending time with him because he is the one that gives the gifts that we require. So number one, spend time with the Lord. Number two, discover what the Bible says about gifts. We've been talking about that over the past month and a half as we've been going through 1 Corinthians. Um, but, you know, it seems obvious, you know, in order to recognize what gift the Spirit has given you, it's helpful to learn what spiritual gifts are available to you and, and what the Bible says about each gift and how they're meant to be used. So you can start um, by discovering those things by, by looking them up in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12 and Ephesians 4. So 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, and Ephesians 4, they, they give you some lists of, of gifts that God uh, has given his people. On that end, um, spiritual gifts, tests, well, I'm sure some of you have heard of those. They're, they're sometimes helpful to a point uh, in, in helping you discover what gifts are out there. But I found that some of them actually seem more like personality tests than, than gifts tests. Uh, though, you know, they can still be useful and point you in, in, the, in the right direction. Uh, And they can be found readily on the internet. I can help you find them if you want one. Um, So anyways, discover. Number two is discover what the Bible says about gifts. Number three, this is significant. Pray for your church and those in it. Pray for your church and those in it. Right? If the reason that the gifts of the Spirit are given is for the edification of the church, then that should be your concern. That should be on your heart, right? As you pray for that, certainly God would make that a desire of your heart, and he gives you the desires of your heart, right? And he will work in you to make that happen. So pray that God would use you to to encourage and bless others in the church, because the more your heart is transformed to do God's will, then the more you'll find that 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 he'll give you what you need to do it, right? So pray for your church and those in it. Number four is similar. Serve one another in love. Serve one another in love. Um, again, this is similar to the last one, which is pray for one another. But it's significant because I, I've, I've found that God will often give us the tools and provision we need, like spiritual gifts, while we're actively being obedient to his commandment to love one another. So he gives us what we need when we need it. You know, if we're just sitting there doing nothing and we just want a spiritual gift for the heck of it, well, probably not going to happen. Number five, ask for it. Ask for it. Sometimes we, we think, oh, I don't want to ask God for that. I'm so selfish or whatever. But ask for it. it again, if, if our hearts are, are, are truly set on, on building up the church, you know, that is, if we have proper motives in, in, in being zealous for the gifts, then we shouldn't be hesitant and confidently asking God for them in prayer. And it's also helpful to ask uh, the elders in the church or other, other Christians in your church to pray with you for this. 
As it says in James 4, 2 to 3, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So again, if, if, if we're asking uh, for the gifts just for some individual experience or because we want to show off or, or for some other self-serving purpose, then it's unlikely that God will honor that. But if we truly want to see our brothers and sisters in Christ grow and flourish in their faith and calling, if we truly want to build up the body of Christ according to God's will, then why wouldn't he give us what we need when we ask for it? He loves to give good gifts. Number six is we should step out in faith. We should step out in faith. First Corinthians tells us that the Spirit gives to whom he wills, and everyone's gift is significant to the mission and building up of the church. Like I said earlier, we need the gift that you've been given. Your gift is significant to the growth of this church. You are important. What God's doing in you is important. Everybody's gift from the simplest to the flashiest is necessary for us to move forward and for our growth. So the challenge often isn't simply finding our gift, it's also having the faith to step out and use it, right? And you don't have to go big immediately, you know, you can start simply or expressing your gift in small and and easy ways until your confidence grows. So number six, we step out in faith. Number seven, finally, last point, is use your gift to glorify the Lord. This should be obvious, but use your gift to glorify the Lord. 1 John 4, 2 says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So ultimately and primarily, this this is what it comes down to, and it's also how we can tell if someone is genuinely expressing their gift. It's that if Jesus is lifted up. That's the primary goal of the church and, and, the, and the primary goal of the Holy Spirit who empowers the church to do it. Ephesians 3, 20 to 21 also says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. We're here to glorify God. He is our salvation. He's the, he's the head of this church. He's the reason that we do what we do. And the power of the Holy Spirit's been given to us in order to enable us to go forth and proclaim his name. So let that be our aim. Let that be our aim as, as we pursue the gifts of the Spirit. Let it be for the building up of his church so that we can make the saving name of Jesus known together. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for who you are, Lord God. I thank you that we, because of Jesus Christ, because of his death and resurrection, because of his salvation, we can come before you, we can come before your throne in confidence to know you, to be in relationship with you, to grow in you, and to ask for the things that we need to live for you. Lord, I thank you for this church. I thank you for each and every person that is here this morning, young and old, male and female. I thank you 
for what you are doing in their hearts, Lord, that you would continue to work in them. Lord, that you would constantly draw them into your love and into your grace and into your peace and into your understanding through the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, that you would work in them and that you would help them to realize the gifts that you've given each of them for the benefit of the church, for the building up of the body of Christ so that we can continue to grow together in unity for your purpose, that we would be a city on a hill, lights shining in this community, that through us, for our love for one another, through your good works working in us, that your name would be made known. Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.